Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Counter Charge. I'm Ash Barker from Gorilla Games. And I am Jeremy Duvall. Uh, we got a really great show today. I'm super excited to have Ash on. You know, recently we've had some um, great YouTubers. We had Luke Fellows from Luke's APS, and we had uh, Mr. Two Thin Coats himself, Duncan Rhodes, on recently. And I'm really happy to add uh, one of my favorite YouTubers, Ash Barker uh, from Gorilla Miniature Games, to that esteemed list. So uh, before we really get into uh, Ash's gamer origin and sort of talk about his YouTube channel, um, what we always do on the show, Ash, is we do a little hobby update. So what are you working on hobby-wise? Um, so I just finished off working on um, the three new bookshelf games that GW is doing with Barnes & Noble. So I painted up uh, Blitz Bowl, which is like a fast play version of Blood Bowl for people that don't want to grind out 16 turns of Blood Bowl that I, I'm really enjoying. Um, and then I played actually more games than I've ever played before with my kids of um, Rise of the Orcs, which is kind of like a tower defense uh, version of Space Hulk that's really like rules light for kids. And um, Crypt Hunters, which is a dungeon exploration game um, with like a procedurally generated dungeon where you're fighting ghosts with um, Stormcast Eternals. And both of those Very are cool. like super kid-friendly. And my, we've just played through actually uh, the first three difficulty levels of uh, Rise of the Orcs. And each one incorporates like different like bad guys. So, like you start with just like orc boys um, fighting the Terminators uh, and commandos. And now we're fighting against like knobs, mega knobs, commandos, burna boys and orc boys. And like the last level, there's like a war boss. There's like boss level creatures. There's like pain boys and like all kinds of stuff too. So um, that's what I just finished painting up. And then I'm working on another indie game next week, which is called Brutality. And I'm going to dust off some of my old Dark Age and um, Wrath of Kings minis from Kuma You're Not that don't have a game anymore. So I'm going to pop them into a sort of minis agnostic, um, like late RPG. Yeah, we always we always joke in the Kings of War community that everyone has a Wrath of Kings, their Hydros in their army as right, a right. as a Trident Realms army from Miniature Market. The one you know when they they always have their their Black Friday sale. So it's like everyone has their Trident Realms Wrath of Kings army like in yeah, their man. in their closet waiting to do. Those are some great models. Oh, I think Owen like exemplified that army. Yeah. He's got that great like double Kraken. Um, his Depth Horrors are all the Shark Gladiators. Uh, he made like a legit army out of that. I think he spent like, I think he paid more in shipping than he paid for the army. He paid because he ordered like 20 boxes of stuff for like $25. They were like $2 each or something like that. And then he yeah. paid like 50 bucks to ship it because it was this massive box of shit. Hilarious. Yeah, so some of that stuff was literally like 75, 80% off. You know yeah. what I mean? So like you say, you spend $100 and get like 5,000 point army. Pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. He has an unlimited amount of hadras. Well, what I've been working on, I am finishing up uh, for my... Uh, my so I, I play Basilea as my main army. So I've hmm. been working on a paladin on a dragon. And I got the... Uh, my sort of Basilean army has a very kind of World of Warcraft Stormwind Lion theme 
So I have like a lot of lion shields from uh, Shibor miniatures and a lot of little kind of like lion-esque sort of theme. So I have the Manticore from Atlantis miniatures. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any Atlantis miniatures. They make yeah. some really awesome big monsters. Yeah, they're, they're pretty new, actually. They've got a, real, a bunch of cool like plastic sprues that I've been looking at recently and eyeballing. Exactly. So I have a big giant lion, winged lion for my dragon. And then in my Vaseline army... For all my Ogre Palace Guard, I use uh, Stormcast. These are like cool. a, a perfect size, right, for bigger uh, mm-hmm. big armored models. And they're all helmed, too, so they look they look a lot like the Ogres from King's War. They're, like, leaner and stuff. Sure. And they have a lot of the line iconography that sort of goes with it. And kind of the idea, the theme behind my army is that it's a all-female miniatures. Like, the the forces of the Abyss, you know, they they uh, capture the hearts of men too easily. So, like, mm. this is a, a Basilean faction that's all women. So, all Same. my ogres are all the uh, female torsos, Stormcast. Mm-hmm. So, so, I've been working on that. And then also, I've been working on um, continuing on... I have a Sisters of Battle army that I'm working on. Uh, you know, I'm an old-school Sisters fan. And then the, the new Plastic Sisters that they've been coming out with over the last year are just amazing models. Yeah, they're great. Uh, they're just so colorful, so so detailed, like really awesome. So that's sort of what I've been working on is trying to get that stuff done, you know, since uh, usually I'm kind of like I paint for in a tournament. You know, I paint towards an event, but with no events happening, it's kind of been like, what do I paint? And I've just been trying <laughs> to pick up, you know, pick up cool models that are like, wow, that looks cool. I want to paint it. Yeah, I paint now so I don't have to talk to my kids. Perfect. <laughs> like, what's my motivator? That's like your daddy time. Daddy needs some, some daddy painting time. time. That's right. You guys go to bed. I'm going to go paint and, I don't know, watch another episode of whatever terrible TV show I'm watching. Um, is that how they say it? Ba- Basilean? I, okay, got some so cr- I got some crap for it for my pronunciation because, like, I was like, is it Basilean? Is it Basilean? Is it Basilean? Like. There's a lot of like, sure. I so there's some the, controversy about it. The two main <laughs> ways is you have Basilean or Basilian, right? right. Or like the right. two. And then if you've listened to, there's Kings of War started to do novels, and they have their first really kind of bigger novels called Steps to Deliverance, and it's a novel about uh, Basilea. But he mm-hmm. pronounces it. He pronounces it. The audio. The guy who reads the book is Basilia. So now we have a third way to pronounce. Sweet. It. But if you, <laughs> yeah. talk to, if you talk to Ronnie and Alessio. It's Basilea. It's, it's Basilea. It's, okay. it's supposed to be according to Alessio <laughs> who wrote it. So that's so, how. Say, so if you talk to the guy whose native language is Italian, or if you talk yeah. to the guy whose <laughs> native language is Nottingham, yeah. then, then that's a pronunciation. I don't trust any of it. I, it's ducks and balloons. Yeah, it's like <laughs> whatever, your, whatever voice your heart speaks in, that's what you just use that. Just so that's a good thing. So what you're telling me is no one knows and there is no answer. Essentially, that that's is it. true. Sweet. No one knows. You just go whatever you feel like in the moment. Uh, do what you feel, Dave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretty much. <laughs> we were always joking because there was always those two ways and then the audio book comes out and there's even a third way and it's like, oh, geez. And how do you walk um, that one back too? Because you paid somebody to say it that way. You know what I mean? Like, that's there forever. You can't even walk that back. Seriously. And, you know, and I wonder if they, if he even got, I don't know, I, I think sometimes they're supposed to get like prime pronunciation primers when you do audio books, but, yeah. you know, I think that I'm not even sure if he got that. But I mean, it's a solid, I mean, one one critique 
critique that the Kings Kings of War has had is sort of a, a desire for its fluff to become more robust and mm-hmm. more detailed. And, and that is something that Mantic, I think, is aware of and they've been trying to work on over the last year. I mean, just looking at the, the edition rulebook. Yeah, a- the new rulebook is fantastic. That's that's actually, when I was reviewing it and the Gamers Edition that came in the two-player starter set, that was my big nod was like, this is like 200 pages of world building that was what the what the universe was missing for me. You know what I mean? Where like I wasn't just interested in it anymore to just like plug in miniatures that didn't have a home and have a game for them. I was interested in like, oh, this is actually really cool. Like I really like the, the story behind the Night Stalkers and I really like this. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, it, it kind of totally. gave that little, that little bit of extra like mustard that, that made the sandwich. And I think you want to have some investment, right? And I think often you had a lot of Kings players who were playing Kings of War either with their old Warhammer models or whatever and love the sort of streamlined game system, but maybe where they were lacking sort of that uh, emotional or creative investment in the world. Yeah, and, yeah the, her, uh, the double the double ones on a, on a morale test, the Snake Eyes, like, pass all of a sudden, you know what I mean, means more when you actually care about that heroic last stand because there's a totally. story behind it. Because you're 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 at you're exactly you're playing out a narrative or you're playing out a story. I think in many ways, uh and I'm curious to hear if that affected you when we get into your gamer origin story, but what what drew me to miniature gaming was being able to actually play out these stories in my imagination, but with mm-hmm. like figures on the tabletop. So why don't you take us through that? Like, how did you sort of find miniature gaming or how, how did you come to discover gaming as a hobby? So I discovered Citadel Miniatures in the back of um, these Choose Your Adventure stories that I was reading. So in grade three or grade four, I discovered, uh, and this is in like 83 or 84. No, this is in 86 or 87 probably. I discovered these um, these things called fighting fantasy novels. And they were basically like a pick-a-path book, but with actual like combat rules. And you had hit points. You had luck. Uh, you had like a skill level. You could pick up items. You could have like eat your provisions, use your healing potions and stuff. And it was just a manually operated single-player RPG basically as like a novel. Um, and they were written by Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson, who are the founders of Games Workshop. Uh, they were their one of their original sort of passion projects. They were published by Puffin back in the 80s. And they're incredibly famous now with like collectors and RPG nerds. But Citadel Miniatures were basically being um, pu- like sort of like plugged in the back because they were friends with Brian Ansel. And this is before the companies merged um, as like a way to, you know, find your hero. Like if this is you, go find this miniature, you know, and here's the mail. Here's the here's the mail order catalog for, for Citadel Miniatures. And then I saw them in like a comic book shop and i t- tried my hand at painting them i think my first pack of miniatures um well my very first one because i couldn't find Citadel miniatures i can only find raw partha miniatures was this like crappy lead undead troll that i threw some paint onto and then um the clamshell pack of reichsguard knights but this is like before they were called reichsguard knights i think there's like marauder imperial cavalry or something like that and they had like plastic horses and there was like a wizard a general and like four or five um just like Lance Knights. And they were on these old, old Citadel plastic horses that didn't even have barding. So they're probably, yeah, like late 80s Citadel miniatures. Sure. And I just made up games. You know what I mean? As a kid, like I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was like seven or eight years old. And then over the years, it was just a hobby that I just kind of always had off and on. Even when I was a teenager and I kind of like lapsed, you know what I mean? For like skateboarding and girls and all the things that you lapse into your hobbies for. I still would paint miniatures every now and again. And I had um, a subscription of White Dwarf. That I was always getting so like I was always kind of like up to date with 
the comings and goings. And then I got a job at Games Workshop in 2000, I think, when I was in university. It was a beer money job. And from there, I just kind of stuck around at Workshop long enough that uh, by 2014, I was a retail sales director for North America. And that was kind of it. Like when I came home, we had, we had my daughter. We came home to Canada. Um, I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, working for Workshop at the time. And um, my partner at the time uh, was going to go and focus on her career. And I started basically this YouTube channel as a just sort of like fun thing to do, and it turned into a job. I'm writing rule books now for Osprey, and uh, just doing this kind of like web coverage YouTube channel and yeah various other projects and that's it yeah so you know, I, I kind of came up in a similar time you know I was born in 1980 so I was yeah, so was I. It, yeah hey, so I, oh yeah, so this so, is your big 4-0 this year too oh, oh yeah I, oh, I, I'm, already, <laughs> I'm already in my head going my life is over that's it. oh like, my my knees my knees just like spontaneously started to hurt and like oh, it's very strange very strange you're the 40th year yeah, it's crazy. But I, but I kind of came up in that same period. Like the first uh, box of miniatures I ever had was that RTB-01 Space Marine box. Yep, you know, yeah, the, for sure. The original Imperial Space Marine box was one of my very first kits I had. Like I think the first metal model I ever bought was Squats and Exo Armor. Sweet, yeah, um, the evil Easter eggs. Yes, I just love those, and like yeah, all in the in that that same um, period. And I I was also a really big fan of the Choose Your Own Adventure books, but I loved they had a whole series of Batman Choose Your Own Adventures. Oh no way! Oh, they were they were really fun. So I like really love like the superhero ones, but it was the mm. same sort of idea of trying to have agency and telling a story about characters you loved, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and uh, you know it's funny, you know. And then I I finished high school around uh, 2000 or 1999, and then I went to write. I was lurking, working at a friendly local neighborhood game store. So the came same kind of thing where it's like it's funny for me. It was not skateboarding; it was the pool hall. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, Which yeah. Is yeah. like like I go, I I had my my 300Z with the T tops, and I drive to the pool <laughs> hall. But in the back seat, in the back seat was always the the most recent white dwarf. Right. So whatever it was, even if I really wasn't into gaming or whatever, I always tried to just, you know, it become it become a part of your life. That even if yeah. it, gaming's like cyclical, right? You can kind of come and go, but it's always something that when you need to go home, it's like feels like home. Well, I think that's the definition of a hobby. You know what I mean? A hobby yeah. isn't something that's ever done, right? A hobby is something that you do to decompress uh, because you feel fulfilled doing it. And it's, it's funny because there's a, there's an old saying, you can be angry, you can be tired, you can be worn out, but as long as you're fulfilled, you're okay. And I think that's the definition of like, if you find a career that's good for you or you find a, a job that's good for you, it's because you're fulfilled. You know what I mean? So you can actually put all that energy into it and be wrung out and be totally like destroyed by it. And that's like, that's what I tell people about <laughs> that are like, how can you have kids? You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, because, yeah, most of it sucks. Like, most of it is, like, never sleeping and having your hair pulled and, you know, like, being asked for cheers at 4 o'clock in the morning. But you feel fulfilled at the end of it. You know what I mean? And so, like, the fulfilling part of that, I think, is why the hobby stays with you. You know what I mean? Like, you can come and go from it, but it's always kind of there in the background. Because if it's something that if it's something that's in your DNA and it fulfills you and you have that, like, it, I don't know, because I can see it in my son. I My, my daughter likes spending time with me so she likes like the hobby stuff that we do like we'll paint models every now and again we'll play board games but it doesn't fulfill her my son has like a, a genetic reaction to seeing toy soldiers like he whatever i had he has like clearly because he's just you, you passed it obsessively <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. got to be genetic i don't know what it is but that that like gotta like you can you can see him hearing the drums beat 
You know what I mean? Like you can see behind his eyes, like his brain's just working and he'll just, I gave him a bag full of like old, like extra HeroQuest miniatures from my HeroQuest project and some like Song of Ice and Fire doubles that I had. And he will spend hours just like setting them up around the house and like having them talk to each other. And like that, that same like sort of mania and obsession is definitely, definitely in him. And I think that's the, that's the hobby thing for me is it's it, when you've got that, that fulfillment from it, from like that imaginary worlds i guess that are just in your head then yeah you can you can come and go from it but it's always kind of there in the background it's like percolating away yeah you know this most recent like i had been out of the hobby for a while and and then in, in 2016 i was finishing up my uh finishing up grad school and i had gone through a really bad breakup and grad school was just so hard and i was like you know what i just need something and then i went back to painting miniatures even before i got back into playing again and there's there's a reason why like art therapy and the zenness of painting models like it really does for mental health it just it it, it just calms me down have you like mm-hmm. i know you're prolific and you do a lot of painting do you get that from hobbying not just because you got to do it for your youtube channel but like the spiritual release of letting it, your mind go it's funny you should mention that because I actually have a friend, um, a childhood friend from high school, and she's an art therapist. And there is there is a real chemical hobby benefit that people have like scientifically studied, where if you can occupy your forebrain with a mundane, repetitive task like painting, and you can get it to a point where you're not micro focused on it. I think that that's a there is like a a gap there because when you first start painting, and you'll see this with with people when they're first learning it you're so worried about every individual step that it isn't relaxing. But if you can get over that wall of like not caring about the finished product, but just work like, like if you make a mistake, fix it and kind of let go of that stuff, you do get into this like alpha state where your forebrain is occupied by the task and your hindbrain can actually defragment. And the, the scientific sort of like explanation for it, it is almost like a, a computer basically reorganizing its files is that you've you've managed to uh, sort of like preoccupy the, the the RAM enough that like the deep sort of like labeling of all the files in your head can actually go and like reorganize itself. So it's it's got the time to go do that because nothing else is happening all of a sudden. And I do definitely get that. Like that's a, if I didn't paint, I would probably write. I would probably, my, my other thing that I do a lot is I backpack and I hike. Um, or I paddle and I, I, I you know, I'm, um, I, I bike, I mountain bike. And those are the same kind of thing where like walking, especially if I walk and I listen to music, it'll occupy my motor functions, like my forebrain so that like I can actually like sort out my day. And I'm, I'm a big fan of those, those same sort of like repetitive motions, repetitive tasks. And I think painting is absolutely that same sort of like calming, centering, I guess, sort of like, um, fine motor skill occupying a hobby if you can get there because I, I, yeah. I don't think it happens immediately for people i think you have to you have to be very calm while you're doing it and not obsessing over the, the fine details because it can also be really frustrating for people if they're if they're sort of like in the, the wrong headspace for it yeah I, I think it's like kind of two things of what you say really resonates me with me is that like i love to go hiking too I'm a big hiker myself and it's there's something about just the repetition and the focusing on your breathing and the just sort of like concentrating on what you're doing at a very deep level and then all of a sudden not concentrating at all. It's mm-hmm. very kind of this like paradoxical relationship between incredible focus and then complete like absence of conscious thought where you're just letting yourself go and just, you know, going through those motions. I used to actually I used to actually go hiking out where you are when I was working in the Bay Area. 
and hike up to Mount Diablo in the morning and have breakfast. And if I was like preoccupied from work that day, I would just get it all out basically on the hill and I'd come back down and I'd be so, so bad that I just go have a shower and then like go to work. I'd get up at like five o'clock in the morning and go hiking and then go to work at like nine or 10 a.m. Yeah. And I think another thing that like you mentioned, I think some people focus when, you know, everyone is on their own hobby journey and where mm-hmm. you on your, where you are on your journey is someplace completely different from someone else or whatever. And I find that sometimes the new hobby hobbyists, they get so focused on wanting their stuff to, to be at a certain level by people who are way in a completely different space on their hobby journey that sometimes that can be discouraging. Right. When, yeah. um, you know, and I, I mean, you can, you can say downslope Jeremy. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm definitely on the downslope of my hobby journey. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a, a bad thing though, because I think that is part of where that I don't, I actually care more about the, 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 the process than I care about the result. Cause like I've won, I've won some golden demons. I've, I've done that. Like, Oh yeah. Let's like obsess over real detail. Let's like sweat every color miniature painting and that just doesn't i had this conversation actually with um tim lyson who's a incredible painter he actually works in he worked in chicago games workshop for years and years and years he's a multiple golden demon winner um about just that, that like at certain points sort of in your hobby journey you come out the other side of that you know what i mean and even if you're like really talented or you're you've, you know you're really well trained as a painter you, you actually just enjoy the process more than the result and like the satisfaction for me now comes from seeing the whole project finish on the table. Like I, I, I get this incredible satisfaction from playing a game with my fully painted army on a nicely, you know, pointed table of terrain that I've built and painted against someone else's creation. You know, I mean, they're fully painted army than I do from like perfectly finishing a single model. And I'd much rather pump out like adequate regiments than this like perfect single individual miniature that I could like put under glass or whatever. I don't find any satisfaction in that because the process of doing it is so laborious and like hyper-focused that it doesn't, it just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> like, I, don't, and, and I, don't, I, I don't enjoy it. Yeah. And I think you see like difference where right? I think some painters will say I'm an army painter or some mm-hmm. painters maybe be like, I'm a miniature painter. Or I'm a competition painter. Cause I think it's, you lose, you use, you use a lot of the similar skills in both those things, but I'm like you in that I want to paint as, as to the best of my ability as much as I can. But in the end, I want to have full armies done. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, it's a different set of skills, right? And a different vision when you're trying to paint a full army, as opposed to painting like a mirror, like a, a bust or like a single miniature. Well, cool. You mentioned it a little bit uh, before, and I know people kind of know about your current YouTube channel, but sort of take us through like, how did it, you first get involved in doing YouTube? I know you were on uh, mini wargaming for a right for a yeah, while, for, right? For like eight months I was on mini wargaming. They, um, I, I stumbled in them when I came back to Canada because I was painting infinity miniatures at the time. And I was just seeing if anybody locally played infinity and a Facebook search for infinity Niagara had, um, Matthew from mini wargaming being like, Hey, come play infinity with us. I had no idea who they were. I didn't know they were, I was going to be on camera. I was just like, cool. So I'm going to play infinity with And I just set up a game and then showed up and he just explained to me what was going on. Basically. I'm like, yeah, cool. And about like, I don't know, five weeks later I was working there. Um, filming War Machine stuff of all of all things, um, and we did oh geez War Machine. I did some a little bit of 40k. I did tons of Warhammer Fantasy Battle with them, uh, and yeah. And then when my son was born, um, I basically left there and started a little crowdfunded by a camera, and that crowdfund went 
way above what I thought I was going to and turned into um, actually like running a studio space and being able to finance not just a camera, but also like the editing software and, you know, a full like setup for basically running my own little studio. And just it, it, it kind of just fit because I already had this huge sort of vast collection of miniatures and you know, like a hobby archive and various different games I played. And from there, it just exponentially grew. And now we are where we are. Like none of this was really planned. <laughs> this was just me saying yes enough times that now I guess this is just my life. <laughs> and, and it sucks because every once in a while people will be like, well, how can I do what you did? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, kinda, I just kind of did things until it worked. So I don't know. I don't like the term idiot savant, but it seems to apply to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think there's, there's something to be said. Uh, and we talked a, a lot about this on the show, which is when you're creating content, you have to, on some level, create the type of content that you want, right? That you like, or that you would like to see. And that sometimes if you're trying to create something that's too audience focused, you, you sort of lose that authenticity. So yeah. does that kind of resonate with you about that, trying to create? That was the word I was going to use as you said it right there at the end was, I think if you make something that isn't authentic, you fail by default because you, you'll see a lot of people try and try and fabricate sort of like a very high quality detailed like experience, but because it doesn't resonate as human, and it's funny because I've said this a couple times of, and this isn't like an indictment of, of, of the, the actor, but I've said this a couple times of the Games Workshop how to play videos that feature um, like the various sure. Geek and Sundry YouTube stars. Because yes. uh-huh. you can, you can t- if you're a hot, like if you're brand new to the hobby, I'm sure they're very effective because it's just this like really pleasant person giving a description of how the game works. And it seems, and it's very like, oh yeah, cool. I, I learned a bunch from this video. That's really handy. But I think if you're already in the miniature wargaming hobby, you look at it and it just, it, it really resonates as hollow because you can tell this person doesn't really know what they're talking about and, and is reading a script and, and it didn't really tell you what any of the nuances of what you wanted to know. And it's, and, and they're not really having a good time. And it's not really what the experience of working game is because the experience of working is messy. You don't, it's really just two people trying to use the rules to create the illusion of parody, right? Where yeah. Yeah, this seems fair. It's two, it's basically two kids sitting in a sandbox throwing GI Joes at each other but there's enough made up rules that that seems fair. You know what I mean? Like no matter what the end result is. Um, And and I think that the joy of doing it comes from that chaos, comes from like the random things that happen with the dice, comes from the random, you know, like vagaries of movement or vagaries of terrain or just even vagaries of understanding the rules or vagaries of how the rules work. Like you get these incredibly memorable moments in your, in your miniature wargaming experience because it's not actually fair. Because it's impossible. Like, without using exactly the same pieces, it really isn't possible. It's the best guess of two other human beings writing the rules as to as to what fair looks like. And so, I think when it comes to making content, I think what's resonating with people with mine is that I, I've never I've never once done anything except roll a camera, and and everything that happens in the videos is just me and my idiot friends hanging out and saying all the stupid shit we would say to each other anyway, right? And playing the games that we would play anyway. Um, but there happens to be a camera there. And I think that probably that's where that authenticity becomes really important to success is that, is that we do make mistakes and we don't, we don't try not to make mistakes. We, we do our best to play the game, but also people learn things through us making mistakes. 
and we try and have a good time. You know what I mean? And we laugh when things go terribly wrong for us. And we, you know, sulk when like the best laid plan was just betrayed by the dice or whatever it is. You know what I mean? I think that I think when you're watching that and you get that feeling like you're hanging out with a bunch of people that you would like to hang out with in real life, you get a better quality of content than if you sort of perfectly manicure a video and have like, you know, tons of graphics and overlays and, you know, shot in voices and whatever it's going to be. Because it, while I think there might be a, a sort of like a veneer of quality there, it's not actually the experience of miniature wargaming. And you you might get a lot of people, but they probably won't stay. And we all have those crazy stories. Like I remember one of my most memorable Warhammer fantasy battles was being 12 years old, staying up all night. And we were playing a mega battle, and I had 400 Bretonian peasants with bows that I had cut out little strips of paper. <laughs> I put one base and like drew the line of all my my empty bases, right. and uh, one orc chariot like charged. In, because my idea as a little kid was like, I'm gonna have 400 shots. This is gonna be amazing. <laughs> the math and, can't fail. Yeah. <laughs> and then I remember they like like one orc chariot charged in and killed them all. And then we had all these wizards on on Pegasuses, and we were like playing this weird rule that if you you could have combat while you were flying high so all mm-hmm. their daemons all their greater daemons just killed our pegasuses so our wizards just fell to the ground <laughs> and died <laughs> because the routes were dead so like right? you said that's that's sort of like that that imperfect storytelling it sometimes really creates these dynamic memories yeah, yeah. absolutely you, you don't get the opportunity for you don't get the opportunity for sort of the joy of the randomness of wargaming um i think without all that messy stuff. And I think that when you can, when you can kind of like first person witness that joy and content, even if it's in a podcast or if it's a painting, I think some of the most successful like painters and hobby guys I've seen even are the ones who just like, they live fire it all. You know what I mean? They don't even try and like go back and fix stuff. They go, whoops. You know what I mean? And they like, they, they do it in a messy human sort of like relatable way. And that, and that people learn even from those like spills. You know what I mean? Like the guy that spills is not, oh, live on stream is probably the guy that, that you want to watch because you learn, you know, to stick up your nut oil on a, on a, some kind of like widget or stick it in a coffee cup or something. It's, it's that sort of like, um, believability, I guess, that comes from things being slightly imperfect and having a sort of like more human layer to them. Yeah, and it's like like you said, it's like feeling like, and it's something that we try to do on this show, which is not having like a demarcation between us as content creators and the audience. It's more of like we want you guys to feel like you're part of our gaming group, mm-hmm. and the same. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's the sort of content that I know I'm attracted to is when you can watch a channel and you just you feel like you're just a part of their game. You're like a fly on the wall, just hanging out with them as they're playing games. Yeah, and I mean, I'll be honest. Like, it saves me a ton of like mental heavy lifting too. Like, I had I had the audience name all my Dracula's America characters for Rough Night Red Rock, and like that was way except for Wilford Brimley because there was one of the miniatures looked like Wilford Brimley, and so he tried to <laughs> the diabetes. He tried to he tried to get he tried to give all the vampires diabetes with his diabetes. diabetes. Blood. He's just gonna yes. gonna gonna cure Dracula's plague across America one diabetes blood at a time. He died in the first episode, but <laughs> probably from running too fast. I think there's like a a real value in that too because you can you can crowdsource a lot from your audience because like if i and i've said this before too is that like being successful doesn't actually even mean having a big audience i don't think in this industry it means having the right audience it's people that 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 kind of are aligned with the way that you do this hobby or or any hobby really like i think that even the even the really big youtubers their part of the attraction is that they probably have something in common with their audience. And they're just, they're, the topic that they're talking about is probably just way more generally appealing than what we're talking about because toy soldiers are pretty niche, right? As opposed to, I don't know, doing your nails or 
uh, doing arts and crafts with your kids or, you know, drawing cartoons or something like that, where you can attract a huge audience. Um, but it's that level of like, uh, uh, sort of like having a quality audience, I think too, if you're consistent in, (laughs) how can I put it? If you're consistent in your approach, it usually means that you're just being yourself because you can't fake, you can't fake it either for that long. Like it's exhausting to try and pretend to be somebody else on YouTube. And one of the things that I'm probably the happiest about having been out in the world now a little bit after having started this whole thing is that most people when they meet me are like, wow, I, it's it. I can't believe you're like that in real life because they must be exhausting to be you. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, I'm just, this is just how I am. Like <laughs> I'm not, I, it doesn't turn off. Like I'm just an idiot and I'm an idiot with a camera and you follow me around. And, and I, I like, I like that, that, that I've never had anybody say like, Oh, you're really different than you are on camera. You know what I mean? When they've, they've met me in real life. Cause that would, I'd, I'd feel like I was doing something wrong at that point. I feel kind of icky about like having this like weird fake persona that you're projecting when you're, <laughs> when you're working and, and not being yourself. Yeah. Cause like you said, I think it really just comes down to that, to that authenticity. You know, you know, we get suggestions a lot for, for people who would want, you know, Hey, you guys should do an episode on this or an episode on that. And oftentimes we will, we'll, we'll go down that road of a audience member idea or suggestion. But in the end, you know, it's really like we allow our own interests to evolve and, and really drive the content because again in in that passion you know passion is contagious right like all your great teachers in school were the ones who were passionate about what they taught and that was kind of i thought i was going to go into teaching before i kind of made it to where i am now and in and i work in social service but i just right. love that sort of uh that how a teacher could get passionate or, or even we, we see it in our gaming groups, right? Where one person in the group will be like, oh, I tried this new game. It's amazing. I got to teach it to you, right? Yeah, we, my, my name for that guy is The Motivator. Every yeah, The group Motivator. Has, right? every, every group has The Motivator person. There's The Motivator. There's The Salty Bastard. Um, there's The Old Reliable, which is the person The Motivator always gets to first and gets them to like just do whatever he says. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of like war gaming group archetypes that I was thinking about making a card game around and just having them all be different, like player characters, <laughs> the, the different people in the war gaming group. Yeah, like the old, the old school historical gamer. <laughs> when I played DBA, we did this. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, he was just going to be called DBA guy. He just never he never shuts up on DBA. Brenton is literally DBA guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, shout out to Brenton. He, yeah. he's, he's literally he, like, ah, oh, you know what? Right? He's 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 metal he's metal straight edge DBA guy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so you, you, he's a class variant. He's multi-class into uh, multi-class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's there's there's a whole like I could do like a whole rogues gallery like different people I met in wargaming <laughs> you know uh, talk a little bit about I, I really like one of the things that being someone um who plays all sorts of different games and really like loves the miniature hobby in a holistic way and just all the great things it's brought to my life you know on your channel you play all sorts of different games can you speak a little bit to sort of uh, what went into your thinking when you were sort of deciding to do your own channel, but play all these different games? <laughs> plan. There's no plan. <laughs> so to quote, to, to quote, to quote, yeah, to quote the the pig killer from Beyond Thunderdome. Plan, man. There ain't no plan. As he's driving away on the train turned into whatever it was, uh, or the truck turned into a train. So I think that I think it happened because my. So you talked about different types of war game. Or my my. Um, if I was to like pick a wargaming archetype to myself, it'd be that I'm like, I'm the I'm the the wargame sort of like anthropologist. I love 
studying wargaming kind of like as a whole. And so I, I derive probably the greatest pleasure in in playing a war game for the first time and discovering a new war game. I'm, I'm the war gaming version of that guy, like stuck in the jungle somewhere looking for like the lost tribe of whoever, you know what I mean? And trying to like discover the new rare insect somewhere in the Amazon or something like that. So my, my greatest joy is finding those little like uncut gems of games and then going right from the ground up, like collecting them interesting to play them, making some terrain for it and then playing a game. And I think that really kicked off probably early with my channel with a few like really key games um, this is not a task for World's End Publishing as like a Fallout-inspired, like post post-nuclear RPG light kind of game um, that we played a ton of, and Joey and I became really good friends after that because of it. Frostgrave uh, obviously was another big one with Joseph. Even Relic Blade, like even Sean's game, Relic Blade. Uh, yeah, it, these are these games where like I loved the idea behind them, and they lit up my imagination. And so when I realized that that made me make really high quality content like when i get excited about something the end result is really good i just do what i always do and i just chase that rabbit right so like i i kept trying to just be on the hunt for things and eventually the nice thing was again because of it, we talked about this with like the audience like chipping in uh, i i got to have this like order of magnitude bigger group of people now out there looking for the next thing too and so my inbox like at on my my facebook page is always overflowing with like yo have you seen this hey have you seen that and like half the time like it because i'm just one guy like it fills up so fast i probably have hundreds of unresponded messages there <laughs> but i love like i try and read every single one and i and it's it's this like invaluable sort of like gold mine of just sort of like research and finding games and stuff and i i i just sort of like continue to explore those games and try new games and 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 also like balance that too because I would do that all day if I could, but I want to balance that too with being able to do the same for like mass market games because as much as it's fun to like chase down all these indie games and indie miniatures they're not available to everybody and I mean like some people need to have like physical assets available at the local games workshop to be able to play a game and so I try and do like balance that with like, the mass market stuff too and yeah and there wasn't really a plan other than I'm I'm pretty self-aware and identified that I made better quality stuff when I was excited about it and one of the things I love is like really like digging into a good indie game and that's what, that's what I'm doing this weekend I'm going to do a little indie game with this brutality game that was written by um, one of the Bella Lost Souls contributors uh, really really nice guy named Scott Wainwright and it's just this like totally open sourced you make up a team of characters and they find a team of characters and you play it like solo or cooperatively or like head to head kind of like like character driven skirmish game. And I'm stoked about that because I can go go play with some interesting play with in a long time or paint some new ones. And I know that I know that because I'm excited about it, uh, it's gonna be a fun video. Like people are gonna enjoy it because it's got a cool theme. Even the the Rough Night at Red Rock was probably I mean it's Dracula's America. It's a published title through Osprey. It's a super fun like like cowboy horror game basically, uh with like little war bands. But it's not super well known. It doesn't like, you know, if I if I did if I did one of those every single day of the week, it wouldn't get as many views or or as much ad revenue as like one 40k game. But it's still better quality content, and it's stuff I make for the the like the viewers who are those like quality people, like that quality audience that get what I'm doing and they really enjoy it. And the engagement's crazy, so they'll be they'll all be chatting back and forth with each other, and I'll get messages about it. And like it's a it's it's different. Like I can I can shoot a 40k video every single week. I would probably get like 15 to 20,000 views in the first like month and it would go to a huge audience that will never actually like follow what I do or, or, or be engaged. You know what I mean? With like the process or like that. It doesn't really care. They're just looking for another 40 K video or I can make a little, you know, fun video for like 
Jack is America will maybe get like two or 3000 views in its whole lifetime and have tons of engagement and it's, it's just way more rewarding. You know what I mean? So I think, I think it's been sort of a, a happy accident that, that I stumbled upon that that was the thing that motivates me. And then it's just the thing that helps me to put out seven videos a week because <laughs> I enjoy doing it. Yeah, you know, when we had Luke from Luke's APS on, he would talk a lot about that. Like, uh, he's a, a big lover of Kings of War, but realizes when he does a 40K video, it's like 3,000 views or 25,000 views. You know what I right. mean? That it's yeah. it's a it's a real big difference. So, I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit, but are you sort of thinking, like, uh, do you have, like, a plan? Like, I'm going to do a couple indie games videos, and then I'm going to drop so in, like, a more mainstream video, and then... If you go to my channel, there's an actual, like, schedule. Okay. So, so, so Wednesday is workshop. Tuesday is indie games. Monday is just like generic fantasy mass market day. Thursday is all out of production games. So it's throwback Thursday to games that aren't print anymore. And then Friday is the same um, mass market games for sci-fi. And so I basically just built buckets for the channel. So you never know exactly what you're going to get each day, but you know, it's going to be one of these five themes and I just fill those buckets. <laughs> and so there is like every week, there's going to be like either an age of Sigmar game or a 40 K game. And people show up for those, right? And they get the most views of anything that I put up. But then every other day of the week, there's going to be something else, a different theme, right? So I've done the game I've actually played the most of, of any game, I think probably on the channel is Infinity. During the lifetime of Infinity N3, there's probably 150 to 200 games of Infinity on my channel. That's probably more games I've played of a single edition of any game probably than I've played my entire life. And it's because we really liked that game. Like that was a game that I did every other week for six years. Basically. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was bi-weekly for six years. So 52 times six, right? <laughs> it's 300 ish games, 312 games of infinity in some way, shape or form. Uh, but, but that's not, but again, it's not a huge game. It doesn't get a ton of, ton of attention. It's just me knowing that I love playing that game and, I'll, and it has beautiful miniatures and it's fun to build the terrain and paint the terrain. And, and it's that's the one where it's like, no, I do this for me. Like, I don't care who watches this one. This is so that I, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy playing miniatures games and I enjoy this one. And then 40 game fantasy, like the thing is that those are ones that I constantly have people coming in to play with me because everybody plays it. So that Wednesday is like stacked into infinity with content. I'm pretty sure that Wednesdays right now are filmed out like eight weeks into the future because just so many people play those games. And so it's like the reliable day of the week that always fills out. And the rest of it's mostly driven by me. Like I drive all the out of production stuff with my own collection of like out of production games, the indie games I mostly drive too because it's just it's me doing stuff through Osprey. It's my my author friends and I doing stuff for ourselves too, and then Mondays and Fridays it's all the other mass market titles. So that's where like you know War Machine would fall. That's where um, Warcaster will fall when it comes out. It's where Monster Apocalypse and Riot fall. Um, it's where Frostgrave falls. It's where you know all these titles that have commercial model lines and are generally available to the mass public will, will basically sit. And it's just a la carte. Like I'm mostly just driven by my audience. When people want to come in and play them, I play them. And I know that you and Owen from gaming, gaming with the cooler, have your guys co-op your co-op. So how nice has that been of having like a central studio space, a space that you guys can share together and have like, and at least, you know, in COVID craziness, you have someone who, you know, you can always get games in together. Absolutely. How, How great has that been having that space? Well, I think it's been, I think, I think this wouldn't have been possible without it. Right. Like <clears throat> one, you got to keep your, your life and your job separate. And so it, it helps me to treat it like a job when I have an office to go to, you know what I mean? Like it's, there's a real mental factor to having a workplace where work gets done and when you can keep all your crap and you can spread out your mess. 
um, versus try and pile it on top of your life. Like it, I, I need that. I'm not, I don't work well when my life and my, my job are like blended together. Um, and so there's, there's that. And then I, I think, yeah, during COVID, I think the thing that helped me the most was that I do all these indie games and I could just pivot into solo play games for seven months, which I did and didn't miss a day of the week. Like I, I, I crushed through seven months of, of, of content basically playing games with myself, just unearthing all of these, even like current, current contemporary titles. I played, um, um, a big campaign of, uh, Warhammer quest Blackstone fortress, which has single player rules. I played through all of the original, like throwback Thursday, space Hulk first edition missions. Um, we've been playing Warhammer quest solo, like the original, like 1996 Warhammer quest, 95 Warhammer quest. Just like it, it there's a gajillion indie titles out there that can be played solo. Frostgrave can be played solo and even games workshop published a ton of solo rules for their games. There's a solo system for playing age of Sigmar. Um, they produce solar rules for Necromunda. Like it's, it, it was a, it was a, I think, a a thing only made possible by the fact that, yeah, I had like the studio space can always go to, that was always going to be safe. And then just not sort of like hog tying myself to one game system or one genre. I could just pivot into doing my own thing. Just making it work. And then moving forward, I know a big thing, uh, is kind of having, your friends or audience members or, or people from the outside come and play games, games with you, with you guys on various different game systems. Yeah. Is that something you're still kind of hoping to do with masks or with distancing or what yeah, sort of been, your we've, vision? We've, we've been doing it with like my, my, my close circle right now, just like my, my sort of your, like your my, social my, bubble, my, not just my social bubble, but like the, the guests that I know, like that are my friends, you know what I mean? So like my social group friends, not just like outside guests. And obviously we don't have anybody coming from outside the country right now because you can't. <laughs> so it's just local people basically in the area um, that want to play some games that I know personally. Uh, and we're doing all we're following all the guidelines procedures for COVID-19 in our area, which means masks, um, sanitizing in and out and washing hands and all that stuff. So it's at this point we're, we're down to like almost no cases uh, regionally here in Niagara. And so we're, we're basically just, um, keeping it tight to people that we know for the foreseeable future until, you know, the, we, we go back basically to something closer to what we had before it all broke out, uh, sure. where I might have people from, from, you know, international locations and stuff like that. Cause I mean, back in the day, back in the day, eight months ago, <laughs> I've had people visit me from as far away as like South Africa and Australia and, you know, like all kinds of crazy places when they're here on vacation. Cause Luckily for me, I'm like I'm I'm next to one of the seven wonders of the world, right next to Niagara Falls. So we got tons of people coming here for vacations, you know, with their family coming to see Southern Ontario, and they would just drop by for a day. Um, but obviously, that's not going to be that's not going to be happening in the foreseeable future. And until then, it'll just be local friends and and Owen, and we'll follow all the usual guidelines for masks and safety, and you know, just be safe. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of Kings of War, I know you had those real early episodes with uh, Clarence, right, where he was. Uh, yeah, uh, he he, got, he made me get into it. Yeah, speak, speak a little bit to how Kings of War got on your radar. <laughs> so I I'd, I'd seen Kings of War since the first edition, since like the the like four page like original like rules that came out with the early early plastics Semantic was doing. The second edition was handed out as a free rule book at the the um, the WTC for Warhammer Fantasy Battle, the last one they ever ran uh, when Fantasy got canceled, and Clarence went to that. So he was in, I think it was, was it Prague 
or the Czech Republic. I can't remember somewhere in Europe. He took the fantasy team there, maybe the 40 K team. And basically as like a cheeky move, Mantic was there handing out Kings of War rule books for second edition Kings of War to all the fantasy players. And Clarence got one. And then uh, Clarence uh, is a school teacher and he spent the next two and a half or three years in South Korea teaching English. That was one of his first like teaching jobs. Um, he was teaching at an English school and had like, so during that time he went like hobby crazy cause he didn't have a lot to do. Right. He's in like a foreign country. He's working all the time. There's not a lot of hobby around. So he, he built like this enormous Horus heresy, uh, sons of Horus army and, <laughs> That's awesome. and played like an unlimited number of vassal and, um, I think it was just Vassal, actually, games of Kings of War, because he just got interested in it. He, it was like, he was like, it's going to be my game. It's going to be my game. I'm going to paint up two armies, Ash. I'm going to come back from Korea, and you're going to, like, January, we're going to play a bunch of games. I'm like, cool. So, like, those super early games is literally Clarence coming back, pounding out two huge Kings of War armies, like, official models, and then, like, just coming and teaching me the game, and we play these big games. And it was tons of fun. I hadn't, I hadn't, it wasn't that I didn't give it a chance, but I was just playing other games at the time. And because it wasn't new, it hadn't really like hit my radar being like a thing that I was going to go and, and dig up. Right. If it's new and it's just come out, it's more likely to catch my attention than me to go back and try something else. But I really enjoyed it. So we built Kings of War armies. Owen and I played tons of that edition. Second edition Kings of War. Really enjoyed it. But then eighth edition 40K came out and Clarence never came back. He got hit by 40K. And it was just, he was just like, oh, yeah, but just do 40K, Ash. Like, I can't, I can't make, I can't make Kings of War. <laughs> he just never came back. And so it was just me and Owen. And we had all these grand plans for Clarence and I to play tons of Kings of War. And he just never got around to it after like all of that, like vassal and stuff. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, Clarence being Clarence. It's like, 40K is so good, man. Just play 40K. It's so good. Okay, whatever. And now he's all on a song of ice and fire. That's like his new jam. That's all he wants to play: a song of ice and fire. Well, there's that's like another one that the the, for our gamer archetypes in the card game are like the which game are you into this month? You know, are the gamers who go back and forth between different games? He's not really like that actually, because if he was, then he wouldn't be playing song of ice and fire because he has to drag people kicking and screaming into song of ice and fire uh, in the beginning. But he just does it. He's a he's a motivator. He'll get people to play stuff Uh if uh he's into it enough but what he what he really can't abide is if he can't get his hands on it locally like if you can't sell it in a store locally then he can't make people play it and he doesn't consider it a real game and he won't play it so like for him kings of war and song of ice and fire are kind of right on that edge of like can the distributors get the model so i can play with it and if it's not something you can play anymore, like he dumped, he was the biggest Warhammer Fantasy Battle fan I've ever seen in my life. And he dumped all of his armies because he couldn't get opponents anymore. And so as soon as he can't get opponents because they, you just physically can't get them, he's out. Like he's done. He won't play anymore. And I think that um, was sort of like the, the big thing for Song of Ice and Fire versus Kings of War for him was the distributors. I mean, in the beginning, now they can't get it at all. Uh, but in the beginning, there was tons of stock like locally. And so he could just like browbeat people into playing it with him and have a lot of opponents. And so I think he's more the guy that if no one plays it, he won't play it. But if people can play it, he'll like drag people kicking and screaming to do so. And and what you say is true. And I think it, it, there's some for whatever reason, and I know that they're working on it or whatever, but oftentimes you want to be able to go into a store for a game demo. And then if you like it, go show me on the shelf where I can buy it. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, and sometimes Mantic and Kings has had a hard time to get that shelf space, um, dedicated shelf space, so that if you are giving a demo, you the player can go and buy the models right then that same day. You know? And it's that double-edged sword, too. They, they have made it, like, model open, too. So, like, 
Yeah. Even when you look at people playing it, oftentimes you don't see the miniatures from the book on the table. And so it's got that like brand identity problem, I think, where some people really do need that. They, because they're like unsure, they want to see, they want to have the value they're about to invest in a game be reinforced by seeing other people value it. And so they want to see people, you know, with those models, they want to see those models for sale. Like it ha- there's a certain amount of like, mm, if I'm going to invest my time and money in this, it's got to be a real boy. You know, it can't be one of these internet indie games. Ash is always talking about where he has to do all the work. I don't want that. I just want, you know, like I want something that's going to be popular for it to be popular. I want to see it. I want to see retailers stock on their shelves. I want to see people playing with those models on the table. I think that's, that's that brand awareness is one of the things that that workshop has going for it, where they're always going to be able to sell 40 K forever. Cause it's just everywhere. Right. And, and people can look around and see people playing with those miniatures when they're first considering buying those miniatures and getting into that hobby. And like you said, it really is a double-edged sword in that having the artistic freedom to do multi-basing and use whatever yeah. models you want is really great. But there is something to be said about being being able to go into a store and look at the models and look at great box art. And that's something that, I mean, def- for me, the, when it comes to Mantic, really the release of Vanguard was sort of the benchmark in that all of the models that they've done, or majority of them, Vanguard and post Vanguard, the quality just keeps getting better and better. They're baller. The goblins from Vanguard are so friggin' cool. They're really good. <laughs> They're so friggin' cool. Like the, the miniatures, you're right. From the miniatures from Vanguard on, they go they go to like a new level of like, oh my god, these are amazing. And even like the quality, the plastic is higher. Like it's there's a there's a real like 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 leveling up there, I would say that that is like it, it's obvious. And we've talked to Ronnie on, on the show a bunch of times, and, and his sort of thinking was we came to a point where we realized people are willing – I mean before they were the unabashed GW cheap alternative, right, mm-hmm. when, yeah. when Mandic first came out. But I think they hit this point where they realize people in our hobby are willing to pay money for nice models if the models yeah. are of high quality. So I if think I, that, Yeah, if I want something, if I really want something and I go, I don't really like the price tag isn't what I'm looking at. It's the it's that like visceral reaction to it. Yeah, you want to see a model and and in the early Mantic stuff, I, I would be hard pressed to say this, but you want to see a model that's like, wow, I don't even care. I want to paint that. Or mm-hmm. I want I want to make an army of that because I don't care what game it's for. That model mm-hmm. is just so it's so badass. I want yeah. You know, I want to paint it. So I know you have your ogres for Kings of War, and I think you had put your you had multi base your Bretonians right to, to mm-hmm. run Br- Brotherhood. Yeah. Um, any plans for any new armies? Are you going to run? Well, I'm, gonna, those, I'm, I'm doing a Northern Alliance army for them. <clears throat> that's uh, that's like my next sort of like thing because I can use I can basically there's a lot of cross pollination between the uh, ogres and Northern Alliance as far as like the giants and like a few other bits and pieces. And sure. so my plan is that eventually my ogres become <clears throat> the allied contingent for my my uh, my Northern Alliance. And so I got a big bunch of like trolls. I got to pay a whole bunch of stuff. I'm really hoping that um, this fall and winter we get back into Kings of War because it'll be a fun project. To just like seasonally paint like a, a big winter themed army and do a bunch of winter battle reports and. After uh, Sigmar came out, basically Warhammer Fantasy used to to have the master system, right, where the country was divided into eight regions, and each year those regions would send their their best players uh, to a yearly tournament that you have to qualify for. Mm -hmm. And and basically that master's sort of organization transitioned to Kings of War after Age of Sigmar came out. But um, one of the sort of regions that plays in the Northeast region, but they're in Canada, is Ontario. And there's a real big growing Kings of War scene in Ontario. Like one of our co-hosts lives in Ontario. So I know that like within that area, uh, I, so I'm not sure how far are you from Ontario area? 
I mean, Ontario. Well, Ontario is a province. Ontario is a province the size of Texas. Okay, well, that so. shows like my Americanness. So, <laughs> actually, sorry, it's the like- size of like Texas plus California plus. Okay. So it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what city in Ontario. I'm in South but- Central Ontario. I'm I'm about okay. 20 minutes from Buffalo. Got it. So okay. if you know where upstate New York is, I'm like sure. 20 minutes across the border from that. Um, but I know that there is like a growing scene sort of in, in, in that area. Is that yeah, people- I think I know those guys are in Guelph. I'm pretty sure they're the, they're the Guelph Kings War guys. Yeah. And then also I know I've seen on uh, your channel some uh, – you, you have done some stuff with Vanguard. Kind of, mm-hmm. I'm curious because I know the sort of idea of Vanguard was, hey, this is going to get people into Kings of War. But in actuality – as far as a rule system goes, it's uh, it's way more chunkier. Not to say ch- chunky is bad, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just different. So in a way, it's like a an introduction to the world of Kings of War. But as far as yeah. it, does that make sense? What I'm saying? It's a it's a low model count but crunchier game. So it'd be like it would be like comparing like Mordheim to Warhammer Fantasy Battle. They're not the same thing. Like in Warhammer Fantasy, it doesn't matter what kind of armor and like like what kind of hand weapon your guy's carrying. He's carrying a hand weapon. You know, not an axe or sword or spear. Like it, it's usually not super relevant. And like, it, Vanguard's kind of that plus almost. But yeah, I think Vanguard's. I think Vanguard's a great, um, a great skirmish system, and we played the heck out of it. It's got a. It's got probably one of the most like sprawling and complete sets of uh, scenarios I've ever seen. Um, it's got like twenty something scenarios. It's like bananas how many there are. And the campaign system is great. We we had a lot of fun with it. I think that um, as far as rule sets go, the best way I would describe kind of what you're saying is that Vanguard isn't just a light version of Kings of War. Vanguard is a very much its own standalone game that requires less time to prepare to play than Kings of War does, right? So if you're talking about it as an intro to Kings of War, you can be playing Vanguard in an afternoon versus painting your Kings of War armor. Even just putting your Kings of War army together might take you a week because you yeah. need like 100, 100, 200 models even. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I, I'm curious. Uh, I wonder sometimes, and we've talked a little bit about it in this episode, uh, sort of the idea of people who just get so fanatical about one miniatures game and every other game is awful. I don't want to play it. Why do you play that <laughs> game? And I, and I wonder, like, you know, we spend a lot of money and time in our armies, right? And maybe if we don't want to feel like that time's wasted. So we want to make sure that we, you know, tell ourselves we're playing the best game unquote. Otherwise all this time and energy I put into like a game system, maybe I would feel or is wasted or where do you think that sort of tribalized attitude comes from of people who are just one game? So I would say that it's people who are on the bubble of being a hobbyist or not being a hobbyist. If you're, if you're not sure you're a miniature wargaming hobbyist, what you're doing is you are spending money to try and find fulfillment and you are much more likely to be aggravated when you don't feel fulfilled by that thing. And that inve- that investment being threatened in any way, whether it's a company changing the rules or you being unlucky with dice or not getting the paint scheme quite right that you liked, whatever that ends up being that threatens that feeling of fulfillment, you have a visceral tribal reaction about. And so you start to like build that that mode around yourself. You know what I mean? As far as your investment, because you'll either, you'll either give it up and run away or you'll dig your heels in and, and defend it like to the death, even if you're not enjoying it. Cause I would say that those people are probably a minority of hobbyists because the real hobbyist isn't paying attention to what anybody else is doing because it's just their own personal fulfillment that matters. They're so inward facing with their hobby that the act of doing the hobby is what they enjoy. And they're not really paying attention to how much someone else is enjoying it. Like, 
How much time do you think that the guys at your local hobby store right now are having a good time? Like you don't. <laughs> no, nobody does. They're, you're you're in, either enjoying what you're doing or you're not enjoying what you're doing. And if you are, it's because you you're actually considering the fact of whether or not you're enjoying it. So if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're the guy that goes online and goes, oh, let's reinforce my let's reinforce either that I'm doing the right thing. I'm looking for validation um, or I'm looking for a target, basically, to spew all this negative feeling I'm happening about what I'm what I'm doing onto. Uh, and I think that's where it all comes from. You're probably seeing the angry reaction of people that didn't get what they were looking for from the investment in time and money. And that was always going to be that way. <laughs> if it wasn't for yeah. that, it wasn't for that. Right? Yeah, because like, it, it's something you do put a lot of time and energy into, right? Yeah, but if you don't feel fulfilled by it at the end, if you do it because you're being asked to do it, but not because you're actually enjoying it, and then at the end you're like, ugh, is this it? Like, is this why is this what I spent all this time and money on? Why why did I do that? Or you get your legs kicked out? Like you, it, here's my here's my um, my dissertation on uh, on on the the dangers of running a business based on metaphysical and non intrinsic value. And I've talked about this before, but I, I know that you played War Machine, so let's let's dig up these bones. Um, <laughs> so one of the most dangerous things that people can do when they run a business is attached to the dollar value that they're asking for someone to buy something to something that doesn't have a physical presence in reality. So to give you an example, I own, I own a lot of confrontation miniatures. I own a lot of miniatures from a dead French company from 2001 that, that I have no reason to own, but I love them. They're whimsical and they're all based on like Paul Bonner art and like, even though the proportions are all wacky and weird now, they just have this incredible character that I just, I, I will never part with those miniatures and I'll probably slowly paint that miniature collection until I'm dead. And so it doesn't matter to me that that game doesn't exist anymore. I can't get opponents for it. And as far as just like an indictment of a company, they literally imploded like a dying star. I don't care about any of that because I love the thing I purchased and I feel great about the investment, right? Whereas if what I cared about was this big pile of miniatures I had because of what they do in a game and they don't do that in a game anymore, my feeling of value in that collection and my purchase is going to feel so attacked and I'm not going to like it anymore. And so it, this is my, my sort of like, I guess, warning tale is when you start attaching a bunch of value onto rules and the physical objects stop mattering. So for instance, you have uh, circa 2006 or whatever, Private Your Breast didn't require painted models anymore in their tournaments. And from there it went to you have precision measuring pogs for whenever you're having a combat to we don't really want terrain on the table, so we're going to use cutout colored circles. To, 2D terrain, yeah. To, to, to this like, yep. this like, are we even playing a miniature game anymore? Sort of like appearance to the games when you would go and watch it being played in events and stuff. And so what you had was this slow, quiet exodus of people who really cared about the physical objects because – they became more and more devalued by the population of the people playing the game. And so people stopped spending money on them eventually. And models got traded in the aftermarket. And I think you had a company really struggle to try and make the perfect miniature game rather than just making great miniatures. Because Games Workshop has never made a perfect miniature game. <laughs> Not at all. And yet, somehow, and, yet somehow <laughs> they, and yet somehow they keep making tons and tons of money. And I will keep buying Space Marines probably until I'm pooping my pants in a diaper because I, the eight-year-old version of Ash went, oh, my God, look at the Space Marine. Why can't I just be this? 
and you know that like that like cool space knight in armor shooting explosive pop cans out of a gun the size of like a small Buick is 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 just in my head. You know what I mean? Like, and it doesn't matter what it does in the game. I don't care what it does in the game. I look at it, I go, I have to have that. And so it's intrinsic versus metaphysical value, right? You can if something is a physical object that looks a certain way and you love it because of that. It doesn't matter what happens to it in the future. The game can die. The game can change. The rules can change. I'm still going to be happy with having paid that money. Um, yeah, versus if if what I care about is what it does in the game and that suddenly changes, I become mad, right? And that tribalism, I think, comes from that mentality of whatever it is I wanted out of this, I didn't get or I don't get anymore. And now I'm mad. Now I'm going to act out about it. Yeah, it's just it's just like this idea of, and I've always been like I I like to play in tournaments and play at a high competitive level and all that stuff. But for me, it always begins with the models, right? I pick the models that I love the most, and then you try to make the best list you can or make those models function in the best way that you can. But it always starts with, like you said, that eight nine year old kid in a game store looking at this wall of miniatures and being like just blown away so you know it always comes back back to that right which is you make awesome models that are uh look amazing and are fun to paint and you're you know and that's your sort of goal i think in in many ways that's going to keep people interested in your products product a lot longer than just having a perfect rule set Mm -hmm. and your eyes open too like you know the experience you're looking for so like you've made you've consciously made the decision to not where the Serlin, you know, um, what is, uh, how to not be a scrub or whatever medallion around your neck and not play with the best possible thing, but to make the best possible thing out of the thing you want to play with. And so you own the result. Like you have franchise there, right? You've made that decision. You can go, exactly. You know, yeah. whatever happens, I know what my limitations are because they're self-imposed. I decided on this. And so win, lose, a draw, I'm almost more satisfied by my wins and I'm more able to manage how I feel when I don't win in that competitive level because I knew what my limitations were. And yep, this was a bad pairing and I got into this and this was always going to happen. Yeah. And victory tastes oh so sweet when it's <laughs> like, you're just like, check out my snowflake army, you know, or whatever it is. It always, you know, like you say, when you, when you do win, it's something that you've earned and, and you have a, you develop like a kinship and almost like a, a, a relationship with your army, right? Where you remember when they've done things or when certain models like, like, oh, I remember the first painted Space Marine captain I had and he survived against all that stuff because I rolled seven sixes in a row or whatever. Yeah. That, those gameplay moments become intrinsically linked with the model itself to mm -hmm. where the model is really what matters more than whether or not it's buffed or nerfed at a yeah. particular time in the game. Yeah, you got history. You got history. History. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, awesome. Moving forward, you know, as, as we start you know, wrapping up the show, and again, I uh, thanks for uh, giving us some time. What are your sort of future plans with Gorilla Miniatures Games? Any new stuff coming up? Uh, yeah, uh, what, I got a new what? title. I got a new title being published by um, uh, Osprey in the fall in November. I think November 26th. I find out all my book release dates from Amazon now because they always know before I do. And I email my publisher and I'm like, uh, is this when this comes out? And they're like, yes. So one of the things that happened, of course, because of COVID, is that uh, publication schedules got pushed back for everybody in the whole world, just because printing and printing and stuff usually happens internationally, and all that shipping got slowed down. So uh, originally in September this month, I was going to have my my new game come out, but it comes out in the fall, and it's a miniatures agnostic uh, mech combat game um, that's designed to basically allow people to play with their favorite robot action figures um, or gunpla stuff or robot toys or whatever. Um, in a miniature wargaming format. Uh, and you can basically command a crew of like frame pilots, 
you can customize and build out your own robots. We include like the propulsion systems, their weapon loadouts, all their perks and stuff. Um, and then take them through either one off or campaign games against other robots. And so it's a, it's a, a mech combat game basically for people that like building those big, either five and a half or seven inch or 11 inch tall Gundam models um, or Very whatever. Cool. So they, they don't sit on a shelf anymore and you can kip bash them and make whatever you want. And it's got kind of a, post-apocalyptic flavor where there's different types so there's like uh unmanned uh nanomachine powered ones that are basically there's this malfunctioning orbital array that was designed to like sort of try and reinstate earth's atmosphere um and it was self-perpetuating by consuming all the like the sort of like satellite detritus that's in the atmosphere but that's all gone now because it's hundreds of years later and so it's coming to earth to try and find parts basically and reanimating all of these like broke down old like um uh you know like combat suits and stuff and they're there's from like ghost and machine max uh there's like a free station crew called the ronin who are all like veteran pilots from other other arcologies that have banded together basically because they've been kicked out of the arcologies they're in and then there's four big primary arcologies that are like the survivors of the human race banded together in these kind of underground complexes that are the only places people can survive on the surface anymore. Um, and there's North Star, which is like the North American Union. Um, the Berg, which is like um, almost like a post-human society that's based in South Africa. Uh, Hanode, which is based on um, basically geothermal energy in Mount Fuji. And they're the, they're the breadbasket of the world. They grow all the food because there's still heat there. Uh, and then there's the Bolshev, who are living in like the underground wars of like Eastern Europe. And those four primary factions are, are who's left in the world outside of the free stations, which are sort of like these like ports of call all over the world where people can stop their crawlers and trade in the black market and, and talk to each other and stuff. And so that comes out this fall. And basically all you need to buy is bases and then use whatever robots you want to play games. That's awesome. You know, being like an 80s kid who grew up on like Robotech and Gundam and all that stuff, man, I love mech games. Yeah, and it's going to be, I think, an excuse for people to buy some of those um, those big like uh, mech kits that they've always kind of looked at and been like, wow, I don't know what I would do with it afterwards and, and build and paint them. Um, and That's for those people that have them on the shelf, they can take them off the shelf and play some games. That's funny that you say that because I've always like appreciated the beauty of Gundam models, and I love painting and I love hobby, but there's always that component of once I finish painting it, I can play something with it. Mm -hmm. That's always been like, well, maybe I'll try doing a Gundam model, but I never like got into it because it's like, well, once it's done, it's going to go on my shelf, and then that's yeah. it. You know? Yeah. So Yeah, that was the plan. It's basically, um, most of the miniature games I've written have been that. I've got some kind of model collection, or I see a model collection that doesn't have something to do with it and so that's that's where that came from and the other thing i'm doing is um we have uh i one of the things that i did during COVID is um joe mccullough from frost and myself recruited a bunch of other indie game designers and we started a wargaming anthology called blaster um and it's a probably quarterly magazine that includes at least one standalone like game or or like standalone playable thing that you can you can play uh the first issue had a standalone martian racing game almost like F-Zero, the miniature game. <laughs> and, awesome. then, and then we use it as a vehicle for expansions for our games that don't have to have a publisher. So instead of waiting around for like publishing schedules and stuff, it just gives us like a vehicle for publishing our own stuff. And that that's done really well so far. We, we published the first one in June. Um, and we've sold, I think, almost a thousand copies so far, which is which has been really good. And we're going to keep doing it probably going forward as like a indie wargaming sort of like um periodical that people can people can pick up well cool man uh, how about for those uh, uh counter charge audience members who maybe uh haven't found your channel or don't quite know how to follow you what's the best way that they can find you you know uh 
Instagram sure. or YouTube, why don't you go ahead and give us your, your deets? Yeah, man. So Facebook.com slash out of the basement into the streets is my Facebook page. And then YouTube.com slash C slash gorilla miniature games. Gorilla, not like the animal, like the freedom fighter. It reminds me of Captain Ron, that scene where he said, <laughs> he said, go, Rilla, not girl. Uh, <laughs> you just make a Captain Ron reference? You oh, just Captain yourself. Ron, you still my auto. You just dated yourself worse than anything you said before <laughs> in the show. That's like a young, uh, like, <laughs> that's like a post-escape from New York, Kurt Russell. <laughs> like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. So, so, so good. I just... <laughs> <laughs> love that movie that was a good movie yeah <laughs> well awesome um uh, thanks uh, again for coming on the show and uh, we got a bunch of stuff coming up uh guys so make sure you keep listening um a bunch of new uh mantic stuff coming up that we're going to be having some episodes on uh so make sure you uh keep a lookout for that and as always remember to keep counter charging thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on counter charge Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.